Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombas. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in three separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. This is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Yes. And honestly, I have nothing new to report. There's nothing interesting going on in my world right now. Uh, <laughs> usually I try to like place the uh, front of the episode in some kind of place in time, but this is just limbo right now. I don't know if there's anything exciting going on in y'all's lives, but I'm just kind of coasting. Yeah, I like, I'm back in the office. Oh, really? Boo. I know. It is be- it is a little better because I have a new job and I have like, I share an office room with a, just one other person who's also vaccinated. So I do feel like safe-ish, but I get nervous when I see people like walking down the hallway and stuff like that. I don't know. Like, it's just like getting used to being social again. And working with human beings in person, you know, it's just been weird. It feels weird. Yeah, I've been in the office since last June and obviously no one's been vaccinated in that time. Oh, God, uh, <laughs> Brandon. Yeah, it's been um, very nerve wracking. It makes me like not want to hang out with people I would actually want to see because I feel like I'm like a liability. Let me know if you want me to like try and borrow some of those um vaccines vaccines and i'll come and <laughs> shoot up all your coworkers so they're not looking <laughs> i am extremely down for that if okay can pull great it off. it'll be just like a movie we're gonna talk about you know a super secret spy thing what movies have you been watching there's like two pretty decent ones that i've watched lately that i want to mention i got around to watching that movie bronson have y'all seen that with Tom Hardy? Tom Hardy, yeah. That's a, yeah. another great Tom Hardy performance. <laughs> it really is. Like, Tom Hardy is really good at portraying real people. Bronson, Capote. He's kind of like a larger-than-life person in that movie, right? He's kind of like a caricature of yeah. a big, muscly man. Big, muscly criminal boy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. He's a, a big, muscle criminal boy. It's an interesting movie, too. It's directed by, and I might be mispronouncing this guy's name, but the drive guy, uh, Nicholas, is it Nicholas Reffin? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> and it's, it's a, a biographical film about Charles Bronson, who was, you know, Britain's most violent criminal, just this freaking big old dude that would just beat the shit out of everybody. And it's what I liked a lot about this movie is there's like this, I guess, like vaudeville wraparound where... Tom Hardy is Charles Bronson in this like vaudeville like stage making weird quirky jokes while we're like flashing to different scenes of his life and it's really really interesting. Also, I don't know why I liked him but all like the the bare knuckle fighting scenes um I was really interested in. It's funny, it's violent. And it's kind of classy all at the same time. And last night, I finally got around to watching A Promising Young Woman. One of my friends, like, had access to this, like, I guess some sort of, like, screener for the movie with, like, this really cool Q&A with the director and the main actress. Why can't I think of her name right now? Carrie Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan. <laughs> yeah. Who was in Reference Drive. Yes. Oh, there's the connection right there. But yeah, I've been wanting to watch it. And, you know, I have this like AMC gift card 
that I've been having for years that I'll probably never be able to use in like a theater. So I'm like, maybe I'll use it to rent a movie for $20, you know? And I came really close to renting this one. And I don't know. I was like, I don't know if I can watch like another like rape revenge movie. Cause I don't know. They all kind of follow the same formula, but um, yeah, it is totally not what I expected. And I really, really, really liked it. So it's, Basically, like, you know, not your average rape revenge movie. It stars Carrie Mulligan, and she's just this woman who is, like, super, super depressed. And what's so cool about this movie is, like, you feel that. A good bit of it takes place in this house that's, you know, 1950s, you know, pinks, and everything's pretty bright. And then she works in this, like coffee shop that looks like a you know a 1950s soda shop she dresses in like these bright outfits and you know everything about her kind of looks happy but she's not and I don't know I just I think that kind of really really set the mood to kind of feel internally like what this character is kind of going through and how her kind of you know thoughts are but basically uh she had a best friend in college who was like kind of gang raped by a bunch of frat boys and she ended up like committing suicide and her friend played by Carrie Mulligan, like, you know, dropped out of, out of med school to help her friend out who was going through like this horrible time. Um, so she was really impacted by everything and her friend's death. And she tries to like, not so much get revenge, but she goes out, pretends to get drunk, goes home with guys that like start taking advantage of her and before it gets too far she like is like hey by the way i'm not super drunk you're a piece of shit um bye that's the part i heard was that instead of like getting bloody revenge she just like gives them a talking to which kind of deflated my interest in watching the film to be honest right it's like she doesn't like i thought she was gonna kill them and she even has like a book with like tallies and i'm like oh this is her murder book that part was disappointing to me because I'm like, oh my God, slit his throat. He's gross. But it was kind of powerful though. Like watching them kind of reflect on themselves. Like it's like she made them answer questions about who they are. Like when they got to that moment and they're like, holy shit, you're not drunk. And she's like, why is this bothering you? Why is it an issue? Like I was drunk. So you thought it was okay. Now I'm not. And it's not okay. And like, she kind of like caught them in a corner. Yeah. There's a great scene with what's the guy's name in super bad. McLovin. McLovin. That scene is a perfect example of what you're talking about. Yeah. He's like kind of making the moves on her, you know, being a little creep. And then when she flips it on him, he just totally goes into his, shell and realizes like what a douchebag he really is yeah so that was at first it was like disappointing but then i kind of got like satisfaction i'm like yeah like now they have to live with the i mean kind of i mean they probably know their pieces of shit but like coming face to face with it and having like someone who they were like taking advantage of call them out and also bo burnham is really good oh my god he's perfect in this film I don't know if I've seen a lot of his like stand up or anything like that, but his like comedic delivery in this was pretty great. It's so weird seeing him in this role because I just remember him from like YouTube and being like, I'm Bo Yo, I'm the greatest rapper ever, ever. Like that little song he had. 
But what is cool about Bo Burnham's character in here is he is like playing that ultimate nice guy. You know, he starts dating Carrie Mulligan's character and he's like, you know, they even have like this really sweet moment in like a convenience store where they're singing and dancing. And you're like, wow, like this is the guy that's gonna, you know, let her trust men again and is going to pull her out of this depression and she's going to live happily ever after. It's great. Right. But he's not really a nice guy. Like there's stuff that happens towards the end where you see like this, how you get caught up in like this nice guy character and you're like, wait, how can a nice guy be such an asshole? And it's like, well, you know, not all rapists or asshole guys that defend rapists are these like grimy looking criminals or these like hoity toity big asshole, you know, trust fund rich boys. It's guys that think that they're nice guys and that people say, hey, that's a nice guy. Like, you know, he wouldn't do anything like that. Or if he did, he didn't mean it. It was a mistake. And that's kind of like where this movie goes with the whole like nice guy thing. And the movie in general goes in a very weird direction that is, like, unsettling and satisfying at the same time. Like, you're satisfied with the ending, but it is, like, still kind of gut-wrenching and gross. But I really, really liked it. What I appreciate about it most was probably the the actual look of the film. It has this, like, bubblegum sort of veneer to it. And then it has, like, a lot of pop music. It's very bright and parts of it are kind of like a music video and it really grabs your eye. I thought that was really cool. I really liked the Bo Burnham character and what he ends up becoming. It didn't quite connect with me or the film didn't quite work a hundred percent, but I enjoyed it. I, I didn't love it, but it was actually the first thing I've seen in the theater this year. Whoa. Yeah, like Brittany, I had a um, AMC gift card <laughs> Woo. from last Christmas <laughs> yes. that I, I still had twenty five dollars on. So we went to the Clearview Palace out in Metairie. Literally nobody. It was like two o'clock on like a Sunday or something. There was nobody in the theater, so it was kind of cool to like have a theater all to yourself during COVID to watch this this movie. Nice. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't think I enjoyed it for the things that other people might. I thought the writing was clever and I thought it looked and sounded really pretty. It's a smart movie. I like how they pulled women into the mix. Like how sometimes there are women out there that kind of defend the actions of like, you know, rapists and don't really come to terms like what they did. Like the thing is like no one in this movie admits to what happened like they all dance dance around the fact and it's like seven years after like a rape and no one will say that was fucked up i knew something bad happened i should have done something and i didn't like no one does that they're just like well you know how it was and you know it's not my fault like ever no one takes the blame i liked how it kind of hit all angles of the situation because i mean I know, like, people who have been, like, raped in that, you know, similar sense by, you know, frat boys um, in college at frat parties and stuff like that. And there's a lot of their, you know, girlfriends who had that same reaction to them. Like, you know, they didn't really do anything about it. And 
you know, as time goes by, it's like, oh, that's just what happens in college. Like, well, yeah, and get same, over it. Same deal with me going to LSU, like seeing guys out at the bar, like hitting on women that were obviously yeah. very drunk, you know, and made me like look at myself too. Like, why didn't I step in and do something about right. the situation? So I the sense of justice in the film does feel fair. I know y'all were saying like you kind of wish that she would slit these are like murder all these people, but yeah. there are shades of gray and like not everyone in this film would be worthy of murder. Some of it's just like icky douche bag behavior that maybe doesn't warrant a full on throat slitting. Right. But right. she, I feel like the way she deals with the people that really do the worst acts are, is pretty fair. Like I, I thought the sense of justice in here was pretty spot on. Uh, yeah. Cause that's what I was like really surprised for. Like that. I, I felt that satisfaction in the end because the ending's good. It's fabulous. It's like, I don't know. I don't want to talk too much about yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I want Brandon to see really it, good, but yeah. the ending's really good. I will see it when it is no longer $20 to rent. That is my promise. <laughs> I'm waiting for that price tag to come down. I get it. Not, you know, not everyone's got like a random AMC gift card hanging out like me and James. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, those are two big things I've been watching. Um, so what about you, James? What have you been watching? The big one I keep coming back to, um, I watched this like quite a while ago. It's probably, it's probably been over a month, but, um, we signed up for one of these like one week free trials of it was like IFC and they got a lot of cool stuff on there. And anyway, we started watching this movie. It's called living in oblivion. And it has a picture of Peter Dinklage on the cover. Who's actually only in the movie for like 15 minutes at the very end. The really, the main star is Steve Buscemi and it's this really funny independent movie about making an independent movie. So he plays this director who's got this ragtag group of actors and production assistants and cinematographers and mic people, you know, all the people you need to actually make a film happen. And basically it's a series of vignettes or it's like three different scenes that they're shooting for this movie who stars Catherine Keener. She's like the main actress. And the film is basically about how hard and frustrating it is to actually get a movie made from a production standpoint. So like, and they touch on everything in here and it kind of becomes this like sort of farcical comedy where it's either the actors forget their dialogue or the lighting guide burns out a light bulb or the mic guy is breathing too heavy or the actors are having an affair together and it's bleeding out onto the screen or it gets even more insane. where like his mother with dementia wanders on to the scene. And so it just escalates where Steve Buscemi is just trying to get this like one scene done and everything that could go wrong goes wrong. And he slowly loses his mind. And I thought it was so funny and I thought the form of the film with the three different scenes that are all kind of told from a different perspective and also a different way that a scene could go wrong was really clever. We don't really get a whole lot of movies that really talk about how difficult from a like technical standpoint it is and like a personnel standpoint 
to make a movie or to even shoot one scene. And so like, that's what I really, really appreciated about this movie. You know, everyone talks like they want to be a filmmaker. And I feel like if you watch the first 20 minutes of this film and you still want to be a filmmaker, then like it's genuine because it's some really nerve wracking, frustrating stuff. We have this really intense, dramatic scene and they're getting all the dialogue right and the shot's great. And then the sound guy fucks something up. Oh, we got to restart the scene. Actors back in place. Get back into your your role. And like, it, it kind of gave me like an anxiety and attack in parts of the film. But Steve Buscemi's great. Catherine Keener is great. And it's just really funny. It's been a while since I've seen it. And I really did not like it when I watched it. It reminded me a lot of like, the complaints that people have about stuff like empire records and like reality bites where like, it's like phony gen X counterculture stuff. But this one actually has a lot of like fans. It's like kind of a cult classic. Um, so I think I'm probably the one who's wrong. <laughs> like I probably need to revisit it. Cause it's been a while. I mean, I do kind of see your point. Cause I mean, this came out in 1995. It's firmly in that space, but I think it just has a bigger heart than some of the other movies and it's just like very silly and at the end of the day it really just made me laugh a lot like yeah. Steve Buscemi is great you have a uh, Dermot Maroney playing this artiste uh, cinematographer guy who wears like leather and a beret it just connected with me I don't, I don't know I, I think you should give it another shot yeah I, I owe it that so yeah so there was that and I don't know if you guys have heard of this film. It's called Titanic. (laughs) Directed by James Cameron, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. It's on Hulu, so it's like 1130 at night. And you put on Titanic. That's two VHS tapes. Right. That's exactly what I thought, James. That is bold. Well, and so like, it was sort of a joke. Like, uh, you know, me and my girlfriend, it was like a Friday night. You know, we had had a few drinks. Like I was just throwing Titanic and I swear to God, within half an hour, I'm like, we're not turning this off. This is filmmaking. Like y'all are wild as all hell. I'm like, they gave (laughs) James Cameron all the money. I don't know how much this movie costs. It's probably the GDP of a small nation and it's worth every penny. And I was enthralled by this film. I hadn't seen it since I was probably in high school. And I had totally forgotten how fucking good it is. It's a classic. It I really haven't is. seen it since I was like in the second or third grade when it came out. Now that you mention it. The last time I saw it, it was re-released to theaters in IMAX 3D. Oh my God. It was really intense. Like, I don't know if I could ever top that experience watching just like this like gimmicky representation of that movie. Wow. I mean, it's as close to a perfect big budget epic romance as you could ask for you see now you're kind of selling it to me especially because it's on hulu like i should probably watch it as like a grown-ass person i don't know that's why i wanted to bring it up because uh-huh my really the i don't even think it was high school i think it was middle school we went as like a group of friends it was like seventh grade and it had come out and i remember liking it then i remember crying when jack dies at the end, but as time has gone on and I've grown up and matured, quote unquote, 
I sort of like, not that I actively disliked it or anything. I just sort of Uh forgot about the magic of it. Mm -hmm. And when I turned it on, I sort of expected it to lose its luster and it totally doesn't. I don't know. Every scene is so perfect in building up the romance. And then the second half when the damn ship sinks, (laughs) again, so much money, millions of dollars, so much CGI. It's just so grand and wonderful and it still works. The only thing I wish they would do away with was the stupid uh, Rose is an old lady and she throws the the (laughs) diamond into the ocean. I could have done without all the like flash forward stuff. But that's like what I remember the most. And that's because in Britney Spears's Oops, I Did It Again, there's that part where she has like that dialogue kind of in the middle of the song where she's like, I thought the old lady threw it in the ocean. And the guy's like, I went back and got it for you. And she's like, oh, you shouldn't have. And then, oops, I did it again and starts back. (laughs) It was heavily inspired by Titanic, except it's like if Titanic was in space. I don't know. I just had to bring that up because I'm a big Titanic fan, apparently. (laughs) Wow. Um, I also watched a three-hour epic this week, building off of your Titanic spiel. I watched a Indian action blockbuster. (laughs) That was on Amazon Prime called Master. Of course you did. (laughs) I love their over-the-top action movies. It's like what I really miss about going to the theater, especially like on a weeknight, you go and there's like practically no one in there. And it's these like three-hour action films that are like way more over-the-top and like bombastic than any like Fast and the Furious sequel. Like all of them really like reach for it in a way that like American movies have been com- become kind of timid because they don't want to be seen as ridiculous. So if you miss like nineties action films, like how fun and like willing to be bizarre that they used to be like Indian films are like where it's at right now. K- kind of like how Hong Kong was like that in the eighties, like Hong Kong eighties mm-hmm. action movies were like really over the top in a fun way. Master is on Amazon prime. It came out in January and was on prime in like two weeks after it premiered in theaters. It is kind of a throwback to 90s thrillers like uh, Dangerous Minds, that Michelle Pfeiffer movie where she like she's like a tough guy, like ex-military teacher who like goes to like an urban school where all the kids are like being preyed on by criminals in the neighborhood. And like she has to like save them from becoming criminals themselves. (laughs) In this one, this guy is a alcoholic He's a hero to these college students because he, like, stands up for their rights, especially, like, they want to form, like, a democratic election process on campus for, like, student government representation. He, like, stands up for their right to have a voice in their schooling and all this stuff like that. But he just drinks himself into a stupor every single day, and that's, like, his main fault. But even when he's drinking, he's incredibly cool in, like, those, like, 90s Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Van Damme kind of ways, like... He wears sunglasses and like he uses his flask as a weapon and fights. And the way he turns his life around is he kind of gets assigned to become a teacher at this. It's basically like juvie. It's like almost like a halfway house correctional facility for young children. And he finds out once he's there that this big evil gangster is using the kids in there to take credit for the crimes of actual criminals who's working for the 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 main mobster 
So like, let's say someone commits murder and the cops are like looking for the murderer. They'll pin that crime on like an eight year old and send the eight year old to jail for life <laughs> for, for that. Um, Jesus Christ. And the movie is like brutal in that way. Like the main mobster, his like his weapon of choice is his bare fist because he's so strong and he just punches children to death in this movie. And it happens multiple times. Like these innocent <laughs> kids just get punched until they die. Wow. Which is just so brutal for this kind of like kind of funny, like over the top action movie, you know, where there's like dance breaks and like a romance side plot and all the other things you expect from like a, a like a sprawling Indian a big budget blockbuster. I don't quite love this as much as some of the other ones I've seen. You know, it's no gully boy, but uh, <laughs> it, it did scratch that itch. Uh, I had fun watching it. If you also missed that kind of thing, it, it's sitting right there on Prime. <sighs> I miss gully boy. The uh, soundtrack to this one isn't quite as good, but there is this song where he says problems come and go chill a bit, bro. I just love that song. <laughs> <laughs> it's a song about how you need to relax. It's great. Uh, and the other movie I saw recently, I'm only bringing up because of the topic that we picked for the today. Uh, I watched a 90s movie I had seen as a kid, and I remembered it being really over the top. It's called Baby's Day Out. Oh, good God. The construction site scene lives in my head forever. This is also like master in the way that it is just so relentlessly brutal in a way that you would not expect given the tone of the film. It's John Hughes kind of remaking both Home Alone and Ferris Bueller at the same time. This young baby, <laughs> like a crawling months old baby, uh, is kidnapped by mobsters and escapes their clutches in downtown Chicago. They're going to hold him for ransom against his like rich parents. And the baby crawls off and the gangsters in Home Alone tradition are like accident prone and are following this baby around Chicago and keep hurting themselves. And... On its surface, it's just a really bad, broad comedy for kids from the 90s. But the violence is so over the top and, like, should be lethal that the movie becomes sort of, like, ironically funny the longer you watch it. Like, this gorilla at the zoo crushes their hands. Uh, the baby lights their genitals on fire. You know, it just sort of escalates in that way to, until they get to that construction site Brittany mentioned, which is just this towering torture chamber of like <laughs> hammers falling on their skulls and like them falling off the rafters to like smash their nuts on like beams and cement being poured down their throats. It's just like hyper violent nonsense. <laughs> With a crawling baby. With this crawling baby. Yeah. Also, um, Vern Troyer, his like first job in Hollywood was as the baby's stunt double. Oh and no! If you look it up on on Google Image, there's a bunch of like Rick Baker effects models they made for Vern Troyer to wear, and it looks fucking horrifying. It's like all these like aged baby masks and like baby parts <laughs> for the Ooh. film. It's a fucking nightmare, uh, and the movie itself is kind of a nightmare too. Got to see it, man. <laughs> Got to see it. I feel like that's spiritually in line with the kind of movies we're talking about today, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, this is a great segue. And it's all James's <laughs> fault. Uh, <laughs> so expect more um, unintentionally dark and absurdly broad 
ironically funny comedies. I think that's the, the general tone of the episode. Yes. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. You can talk to a cat. <laughs> you can talk to your dad. Yeah, but we don't have anything in common. You both talked to a cat, didn't you? And the cat talked back, didn't it? That's weird. True. True. But so is life. And now it's time for our movie of the minute. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth, recommending films to each other. And this topic was James's design. What did you make us watch? Well, don't say it like that. I mean, you can you can say <laughs> thank you. I don't know if I want to say thank you. What? Oh boy. <laughs> uh, all right, all right. Let's see how it is. The film I picked was a talking cat. It's exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. So that, and that, that about sums up the, uh, the film right there. Okay. I guess we're done. <laughs> Just, <laughs> well, so it's that's, my, that's it. It's from my 2013 direct to DVD. Not surprising. I mean, at its core, it's a family, family film. It's about two families with single parents coming together. And they do so through the work of Duffy, the talking cat. The rule is he can only talk to you once. <laughs> and he's voiced by Eric Roberts, pretty famous, famous actor. <laughs> World-renowned actor. World-renowned. <laughs> but I randomly watched this. I just saw the cover art. I was like, oh, that looks funny. I didn't know how notorious this film was and that it pops up on a lot of so bad it's great lists and stuff like that. But um, I made you guys watch this movie because I think it scratches that itch of The Room, and I think it is better than The Room. I think this is one of the greatest it's so bad it's enjoyable films that I've ever seen. I have a question about that. Well, yeah, let's let's get into it. What I don't understand is so much just garbage is made all the time, especially right now. It's like way cheaper than ever to make and distribute a film, especially on these like digital family movies. You can just churn this crap out. And, you know, even the director of this film makes hundreds and hundreds of movies all the time. Like he just constantly makes stuff. So I, I don't understand what makes this one stand out. Like why was this one anointed? as one of the best bad movies of all time, as opposed to like all of the other stuff that's like kind of exactly like this. Really? Like what else? Like even earlier that even earlier that same year, I think he made a movie with Eric Roberts called like the Halloween puppy where Eric Roberts <laughs> voiced a talking puppy. That sounds and great. It's like, I so why was it. that one not singled out? But this one was like, I, I don't understand sometimes like how the cream rises to the top i don't know have you seen the talking puppy movie <laughs> it can't be any lazier than this <laughs> i don't know james like, is gonna watch it there might be a reason <laughs> i think eric roberts has found his lane no he didn't he didn't find his lane <laughs> <laughs> to get into the plot it starts with duffy just sort of walking around nature as a cat does <laughs> sort of pontificating about the meaning of life but it's so bizarre because, first of all, Eric Roberts, 
I read he recorded all the dialogue in this film in half an hour. And it sounded like it was in his bathroom. And it sounds like it's in his bathroom. <laughs> and he sounds disinterested, maybe <laughs> inebriated, like maybe drunk or high. I can't tell. Wasted on the toilet. Right. That That's what it sounds like. He's wasted yes. on the toilet half an hour, <laughs> does his lines. But, you know, we don't see the cat's mouth move. So we have to assume this is like all... I guess in his head, what he's thinking. And so right off the bat, you have questions about, okay, it's a talking cat, but we're really hearing the inner monologue of this cat. And who is like the soul of the cat played by Eric Roberts? You know, what kind of cat is he? And he seems like a very lazy, but you know, kind of knows the meaning of life. He's figured it out. (laughs) And it basically goes along the movie helping these people kind of solve their problems. And at the end, everyone ends up happy and successful. And uh, isn't that great? (laughs) Isn't that fun? I love the laziness of the filmmaking. And it does kind of match the laziness of that cat. Like that cat has no charisma. It's not very interested in people paying attention (laughs) to it. And his voice kind of matches that, uh, that vibe. He's not He's like, oh, these cute. humans with their little problems. I guess I'll go <laughs> saunter over here and fix their lives. Like, he's very, like, he's a sarcastic, winded cat. Well, but see, that's one thing I love about it is, like, so many other, and we're going to talk about other cats, but this cat is, like, exactly the vibe of, like, an overweight adult cat that doesn't, you know, he just wants rubs and Or milk. just an overweight adult. Like, or an adult, yeah. yeah. You know, I vibe with him. <laughs> he knows what he wants. And I do feel like he has, I don't know, there's some truth in that. Like, he just wants to be fed. He wants rubs. Uh, he's got some really good life but advice. where did his magic come from? Well, it, it comes from his magical collar that was buried. <laughs> Who buried it? That's why Who they're setting it? up a sequel, obviously. <laughs> Brittany. Well, they didn't make that, but they did make a talking pony uh, that was a adaptation of Romeo and Juliet starring Eric Roberts as a talking pony. Is he only doing talking animals like post all his like failed lifetime movies? <laughs> Eric Roberts has time for hundreds and hundreds of films. You can't, you can't be pigeonholed to one category, but I'm sure that is a substantial subcategory of ever Eric Roberts movies is talking animals. <laughs> I mean, I feel bad for him because like he seems like a really nice man. And, like, I was telling James, like, whenever the last episode we recorded during, like, one of our, like, breaks, that, what is that show again with that, the cat whisperer guy oh, with the cat, guitar case? Oh, Cat from Hell. My Cat, cat from my Hell. My Cat from Hell, yeah. Well, Eric Roberts and his wife were on an episode of My Cat from Hell, oh. and they actually have, like, a bunch of, like, cats, and they, like, really, really cater to their cats at their home, and they're, like, really nice, loving, like, cat people. That's great. I mean, I, I do think the humans in this movie deserve some credit as well no. for making it successful. Because, I mean, <laughs> you know, after we see the cat walking through the woods and we get to be introduced to the two families and you have this guy, Phil, who, well, he's super rich. He lives in this like ridiculously gaudy house up in the hills he loves making investments like his phone call where he's like hmm sure financial advisor invest all my money in that (laughs) (laughs) 
we also have to note that is uh, the director's house. Uh, David Dakota films what? most of his uh, late career productions in that living room with those exact same pieces of furniture, including that like half a car couch uh, <laughs> is featured in no matter what movie he's making because he just sort of films all these movies around his property. Uh, well, I love that they acknowledge that by like, oh, I got a decorator to do that because it's obvious like this guy would not decorate his house like that. So they, <laughs> they do have an explanation for the mm-hmm. gaudy. I mean, you're right. There's one statue where it's like a tree with oh, high God. heels. <laughs> I love that. That thing. is so freaking bizarre. Now, where do you think this house is? Because like whenever you have like those transition scenes, sometimes it looks like you're on like a deserted tropical island. And then sometimes it looks like you're like, in the Amazon, and then sometimes it looks like you're literally in a forest. I know he's a he's a Canadian director. I don't know if that's in Canada or if it's in Los Angeles. My guess would be L.A. Okay, those scenes were some of my favorite. I like found them to be very tranquil. Like how you spent like about ten minutes watching this waterfall. Well, that's one great thing about this movie is it really has to pad its runtime, mm-hmm. so <laughs> you get lots of. I don't know. Yeah. Shots of nature that go on for maybe like two or three minutes too long or shots of like someone driving to another destination that goes on a little bit too long. The credits go on for like 10 to 15 minutes. (laughs) So this is really like a 45 minute, maybe not even, maybe it's like a half hour story. Yeah. In an hour and 25 minutes. I did clock it. Uh, it takes 11 minutes before um, Duffy introduces himself. Like, I'm Duffy. That's 11 minutes into the film. And then 20 minutes in is when he actually starts talking to people. That's a long time for an 80-minute movie. What was tripping me out is that it was hard to kind of differentiate, like, when is Duffy thinking out loud and when is he thinking? actually talking he's talking when it when his mouth is moving just when the mouth moves great cgi to his his little tiny little (laughs) oh my god that was very it's like a little like cardboard cutout that they animated (laughs) over the top of his mouth yeah it kind of makes you feel like as a member of the audience that you are kind of fighting the magic because you get to hear duffy talk the whole time (laughs) not just once I want to talk about like that business dad character because <laughs> he was freaking me out. Whenever we all worked at the National Finance Center, when we worked for Deloitte, there was this man that used to walk around the building that I was obsessed with. And he looked just like the dad in here. And he used to stop at my desk all the time and go, hmm, another day in paradise. Oh, God. oh boy. I'm pretty sure that was a ghost. Haunting the hallways and then (laughs) But he would do it every day. And when I watch this, I'm like, who does that man remind me of? Like same mannerisms, everything. I thought it was so funny. From what I was reading, he was a child actor in something. Yeah. Family affair. Family affair? Yeah. I was obsessed with that when I was little. And my first cat name was Miss Beasley after the Miss Beasley doll from Family Affair. Which is so interesting that he is in a movie about a cat. I don't know. What, <laughs> your, your thing about the business stuff, anytime they would talk business, it just made me laugh out loud. <laughs> he has that 
line at the very beginning when we first meet him where he tells his son who I don't know what the deal with his son is like I don't know what their dynamic is it's sort of homoerotic that's another David Dakota uh, standard is that he casts uh, young twinks as his characters no matter what kind of movie it was like a twink sugar daddy dynamic it was like we accidentally went into Pornhub in this bizarre category Especially once he starts learning how to swim, uh, another twink oh, comes by scene. and they go somewhere in the pool together. I mean that—that's really the heart of the the film. That's the subtext. But no, like the the business stuff, like he says, I had to pull up this quote where it's like, "It's over." The company we sold the websites, the interfaces, the code that I worked on half my life, sold myself out of a job. It's so vague. He's just like, oh, the algorithm. Yeah, and there's another character in the the daughter in the other family who wants to go to business school. But she, yeah, she does some algorithm to pick out your dress, and they end up working together on business. And they start scanning their clothes into the software with a reading light, (laughs) which is a really long sequence. Like yeah, and it has nothing to do with the cat. The cat is not hanging around watching them scan their clothes into the computer. Remember whenever he like almost got hit by a car. That is that was one favorite. of my favorite parts of the movie. Because, like I said, the thing I most respect about this film is how lazy it is. So little effort went into making this a movie, and I feel like the movie openly acknowledges that when Duffy gets hit by the car. Or almost gets hit, and they all go visit him in his hospital bed, which is just someone's like bedroom, and he has one thin layer of gauze loosely wrapped around his skull, and that's supposed to be him like fighting for his life at the vet, uh, more or less. <laughs> and jo- and you hear John Roberts like moaning, like oh, like you know, but the cat itself Sick. is chilling. Sick shit. The cat is fine. Like he looks like he wants to take a nap. I don't know. That was funny. It looks like they were, whenever they put the magic collar on him, he like goes upside down. You could tell that like someone on that film crew was like rubbing his stomach. <laughs> did, it, did you guys see the laser pointer in multiple scenes too? No, no. Oh my God. There's one scene where Duffy is, uh, I think he's going at one of the character's shoes in the beginning. And you literally see the laser pointer directing him towards the shoe it's pretty great but um i don't know there's a lot of bad shit crazy stuff it's like crazy and like very banal and i don't know it's such a weird tone for me like brandon said i mean i guess it's that very little effort was put in to make it a movie but there's something about the tone here that like i was delighted by and it i it just had me in stitches when you say it's batshit crazy, that's what I disagree with because there's just like nothing that happens in it. That's it's the crazy kind of essentially part. a hangout film. No, the the crazy part is like like there's no, and this is like part of I guess why it feels like pornography. Like when I talk about the tone, like it feels like porn in the sense that like there's <laughs> no does. other characters there. There's no extras. You literally have like the five or six characters in two or three locations. And this like talking cat and you know, the main house where it's shot in, which 
apparently the director did shoot softcore gay porn there like many, many times. It has the feeling of that, but on the surface, it's like a very lazy family film. And there's something about that that was very appealing to me. That's what I like about it too, but like only in context of the fact that David Dakota has like almost 200 film credits to his name. Like he started off with like full moon in the eighties, but for the most part, he's just been constantly churning out his own stuff. And the fact that he can make a career, just like making dozens and dozens of films in his living room and putting in this little effort. And then something like this, like takes off. Like I respect the grift. It's, it's very, satisfying and like kind of sweet. Like it's not like Neil Breen when we watched the Neil Breen movies, I was like, God, this guy's fucking gross. Like, I can't believe we're like paying this much attention to this. This creep. one has a heart to it. Yeah. David Dakota is kind of sweet and cute. And it's, I, I kind of want this grift to continue. I pulled this uh, interview with him in this uh, zine that I bought called the important cinema club journal. It's from this podcast, important cinema club. And they're interviewing about, about a talking cat taking off. And he says, I had just done 28 movies in 28 months. I'd been really, really busy for the past couple of years. So I wasn't really looking on the internet about this talking cat movie. I just knew our DVD numbers were good. Our video on demand numbers were good. And we got a placement on Netflix. And then people called me who I hadn't talked to since high school and said, David, after a hundred movies, you finally made a movie we like, and it's called a talking cat. And I thought, what is it with this movie? And that's my vibe too. It's like, why this one? (laughs) But I, I think it does a good job of like highlighting how little effort he puts into this stuff individually. It just is confounding the more I think about it. Like, why this movie? And I don't understand how like cult stuff gets chosen anymore. I, I cannot wrap my mind around I, it. I mean, I think it's a combination of of a lot of things. I don't know if I can put it into words. I think it's like for me, the music, that stock like Casio tone. Music, it's been stuck in my head for weeks now, and I don't know why. Just I just think about Duffy sometimes. <laughs> like, so I, I don't know. There could be something wrong with me. I'm not Maybe. sure. It's a very popular film, apparently. So it's not just you. Well, I think in comparison to the other movies we're going to talk about, if we're going to talk about The Cat itself. I mean, I think I did like that it seemed the most cat-like. It, or it seemed like what the thoughts of a cat would actually be like, you mm-hmm. know, like a little, a talking cat. This is probably the kind of things it would say. Whereas some of the other ones we're going to talk about, it's just humans in a cat body. And that, that's not really fun. I, I think I enjoy more like literally if your cat could talk to you, this is what it would probably say. And I think it would sound a lot like John Roberts in this film. Eric Roberts. Oh, Eric Roberts. Sorry, not John that's how Roberts. Forgettable. So, yeah, that's how forgettable his performance was. You've already put in more time talking about this movie than he put in recording his lines for it. So, I mean, like, I know that kids are, like, stupid, but, like, what kid would really enjoy this? No, this is for, this is for mature viewers. I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> this is not for kids. I mean, I love dumb stuff and (laughs) i thought it was funny i think like the parts that like i found just so frustrating was like all the shit they use like like we talked about earlier just kind of fill in the gaps and like take up time and space 
I don't know. I feel like everybody said like a paragraph's worth of like dialogue. <laughs> but that adds to the mood. You got that like <sighs> lazy island music and you're looking at nature. But you're not even on an island and we don't know if you're like in a mountain or on an island. And <laughs> Well, it's just nature. You're just out in nature with Duffy. Walking in nature. That's what they all... Who like... I don't know. I'm going walk in nature. Who says that? Tammy Brown. Oh, <laughs> she does! <laughs> this movie was made for Tammy Brown. <laughs> yeah, because she's stoned. She... <laughs> yes. I will say I watched it stoned and I watched it sober and I laughed both times. So it's not that. <laughs> James has road tested this movie in all conditions. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for testing it. It's just so wholesome. There's not really a conflict. You get to hang out for a little bit. It all resolves nicely. They're all happy at the end. What's not to like? I don't want to sound like totally negative on it. I just don't totally get it. You know, watching it, like, I, I just kind of confused, like, how some stuff gets anointed is like, worthy of everyone's attention well like how did you feel how did you feel about something like the room i don't know that i can say that anymore if i had seen like the room now versus what was that like 10 years ago or longer ago when that movie blew up i had more of a enthusiasm for this kind of like so bad it's good stuff back then where you're like laughing at something see i i agree with you there like me and you, I remember we went through a period where we watched every So Bad It's Good films. And yeah, I've gotten away from that myself. But I think this one I like more than something like The Room because like with The Room and Tommy Wiseau and with the Neil Brain movies, you can really sense their ego coming through the film. Like it's all about making them look like some macho film star and... In this, you don't get that. You really just get, like, it's happy, it's silly, it's pretty lazy, but it's got a good heart, and I think it's got some very ridiculous dialogue. You know, the Eric Roberts stuff is hilarious. You know, I wasn't thinking about The Room. I was thinking about Matt Farley's movies, like Mm -hmm. uh, Don't Let the River Be Sketch You and stuff like that, where, like, the production values are kind of the same. He makes backyard movies, but his backyard just isn't as nice as David Dakota's backyard because, you know, this guy seems to be a millionaire, I'm guessing, just based on where this was shot. But like Matt Farley's movies are not lazy and they're like constantly funny and like effort goes into them. So I guess I'm like being drawn more towards movies that are still on this like budget level, this like micro budget DIY, like anybody can make this kind of stuff. Well, this movie cost a million dollars to make, by the way. That's unfathomable. Yeah. That shocked me. I looked up. Yeah. A million dollars. That sounds like some kind of like tax fraud. uh, Oh, yeah. Like an actual (laughs) number. But I don't know. I I would much more likely reach for a Matt Farley movie or like someone on that level of like amateur filmmaking, but like actually trying to make it good than something that like I'm supposed to be sort of laughing at how inept it is. I'm, I'm losing that bone in my body. It's it's dissipating as I go, get older. Like I say, I'm with you, but this one struck a nerve for me. This one cut through. This one cut me deep, man. It brought me back to our early early days of watching some of those very very bad films that we would laugh at. And I I haven't <laughs> I haven't felt this giddy watching 
an extremely bad movie in a long time. So that's why I wanted to subject you guys to it. Thank you. <laughs> sorry. sorry, not sorry. What's the matter, Large Marge? Cat got your tongue? Oh, oh! oh my, a talking cat? Scary, isn't it? The movie that I chose for our lovely talking cat episode is the movie Cats and Dogs from 2001, which has like such a massive budget (laughs) and made so much money for being such a stupid movie. But yeah, the budget was like 60 million for this movie and it made like 200 million. Half of that had to be for CGI. Or the mini puppets, um, (laughs) which we'll get to. So there is like quite the complex story in this movie. Like I think for, obviously it's, it's like, you know, a mainstream children's movie, but it's got a really complex plot. So what's happening is cats and dogs are truly, truly against each other. And, Cats are these evil little things that want to rid the world of dogs and ultimately control the humans. And dogs know that the cats are doing this. So they have like this underground like base where they do training and they try to like infiltrate the cat's evil plans. (laughs) And... The source of what the cats are looking for is being created by a mad scientist dad played by Jeff Goldblum. And he really does a good job at playing that like kooky science dad. He's very Rick Moranis (laughs) with this. But yeah, it's just like a, you know, cat versus dog kind of spy movie. And what I love the most about this movie is even though it's cats versus dogs, like the cats are so amazing that like, I think this is a hundred percent a cat movie. Yeah. Dogs are in it and whatever, but like the cats are freaking wild. And what's really cool about this movie is they kind of used a blend of real animals, multiple puppets And lots of computer animation. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, wide shots of action in CGI. And then up close, like, animatronic talking animal puppets. I love the the scenes where the dogs talk. Because it has, like, the, the tiny little dog teeth at the bottom that kind of pokes out. But, yeah, in this movie, there's actually... um, They use 33 real cats and about 27 dogs that they got from like shelters and trained. So they like did tons and tons of training. There's Tinkles, who's this like white Persian cat that's super evil. He had actually like two different cats playing him. They had a puppet made of him, which I will say the Tinkles puppet scenes are my absolute favorite Uh, scenes in this movie like there's this part where he like holds the family hostage and does like like the threatening like vhs recording and his like paws are flying up in the air (laughs) and so yeah like a lot of the animals they had multiple animals that were like kind of playing the same role and then they also had their own puppets and then also their own like 
CGI like animations. So yeah, for like a talking cat movie, I thought it was great because there's a ton of different talking cats. <laughs> what more could you ask for? So what did y'all think about cats and dogs? I really liked more than I expected to, especially the first five minutes before any of the plot is introduced, like before the cats and dogs, like espionage, international warfare thing comes in. It's just this dog chasing this cat through suburban homes and across lawns and both of them just getting horrifically injured in that way I was describing with like baby's day out at the start of the episode, like (laughs) just hyper violent, like running into trees and windows and things that would like break their little pet necks. If it happened in real life, (laughs) just like launched through the air and exploded. And the movie kind of keeps that energy up the whole time. Like it's just always super violent. It's what the kids want. (laughs) Yeah. Like Looney Tunes kind of violence and it's over directed. Like, what I really like about that movie, Cool as Ice, the Vanilla Ice movie, where like every shot has to be framed with this like wide angle lens at some ridiculous angle, and there's like boy yo yoing like sound effects anytime <laughs> someone smacks their like face against the wall, and like I I think if you played this movie in a midnight slot, even though it is a mainstream film that was like a hit genuinely with audiences i think if you played it with like an ironic stoner crowd as like a double feature with a talking cat i think it would kill like i think people would laugh so hard at this uh, because (laughs) it is just constant buffoonery and the puppets and the cg are just so (laughs) odd that it becomes almost surreal the longer you watch it I i found it to be exceedingly bizarre i have no idea how it became so successful but i also enjoyed watching it because it was just like a monstrosity. I mean, yeah, it did feel like a full-length Looney Tunes episode with this like spy pesty. It's like every spy movie you've ever seen, both cats and dogs. And yeah, I mean, it is just like pretty much nonstop action throughout. I mean, I guess I sort of don't like that cats always have to be the villain, but I get it. They are evil. <laughs> I'm saying that as a cat person. Again, that... That's why I, I like my Duffy, because he's a real cat. He's not a villain. See, well, I like I like my Tinkles. Tinkles is so <laughs> over the top. He's, he's so evil. He's an evil, evil cat. I did like his, the John Lovitz voice, the uh, sidekick of his, that like bug eye cat. That was, yeah. that was really good, too. I did recognize some of the voices, like obviously Alec Baldwin. Uh, I yeah. recognize John Lovitz, but um, it's kind of kind of interesting. Like they sort of look like, like Charlton Heston was a dog. <laughs> they look like the animals. They, they kind of look like dog versions of the humans <laughs> that are playing them, but not in a like overt way. But it's like very subtle. I thought that was cool, and I thought the CGI was bonkers. It's surreal. It's like cut and paste, like two D unreality like there's like a uncanniness to it like i said i I think if you played this like a rowdy midnight movie crowd i think it would blow people's minds in that context i think one thing um because i think there are some interesting comparisons to the movie we're going to talk about next and i think part of it is like there is something about that that cgi style that kind of does it for me it's like bad it's pretty gaudy 
probably way too expensive, but in these films, I kind of like it. I think it can be done really well, right? Like, I, especially in Asian movies. I'm thinking of like Stephen Chow's films, like The Mermaid and Kung Fu Hustle and stuff like that. Or um, even in some of the Indian movies we've watched in this show, like that in Theron, the Chitty Chitty Robot movie, like the action is so cheaply animated, but kind of unashamedly so that it kind of does more with CGI than like a big budget movie would dare to do. You know what I mean? Like if it was worried about looking silly, it would keep everything kind of in the dark and try to do it like this, like kind of subtle underplayed way and try to keep it serious. But because this is a stupid kids movie, they can just do anything with the animation. Yeah. And you don't really see that in American films that much where they just kind of go for it. Yeah. I mean, it, again, it's like a live action cartoon and they're leaning into it a hundred percent. It's kind of the opposite of a talking cat in like a lot of ways. Like this is a really mean, violent film and a talking <laughs> yes. cat is not at all. Like that's a very gentle, nice movie. It's nice, but it's a weird movie. Like, I don't really feel like any of this was like a sweet. None of the movies we watched, I think, were like sweet cat movies. You don't think a talking cat was sweet? I just think it was uncomfortable. <laughs> there were there were undertones to it that were very uncomfortable, but I think at its heart, it was. I guess it was sweet. Duffy's yeah. sweet. Come on. He. I will say it's cool how Duffy's a Hemingway cat. I noticed his paws while he was making biscuits. Well, and honestly, on a personal note, that's another reason I did like that movie a lot is it did remind me of my cat that had passed away. Oh, yeah, because she was a Hemingway. She was a Hemingway. So, yeah, that that was a little personal. She had big Duffy energy for sure. Big Duffy Duffy, energy. You're right. (laughs) She is what Duffy should have been, I think. I think Duffy is probably my favorite cat of the cats we're going to touch on today. And I will say, yeah, like, I think Mr. Tinkles was my my fave. I vibed with him because I feel like my cat Hermes is more on Mr. Tinkles' level. Like he's he's a big old asshole that's super smart. And I don't think anyone could like the cat from Nine Lives. So, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, if a talking cat is like the laziest movie we're going to talk about and cats and dogs like overachieves trying to entertain you constantly and just like beats entertainment into your brain uh i think nine lives is kind of caught in between those movies i saw this in a movie theater in 2016 uh i gave it a four-star review (laughs) (laughs) wow brandon wow i should note that um this was before kevin spacey was outed as a repeat sexual offender and has since been canceled rightfully so Basically, he only stars in his own internet videos that he posts every year to troll his haters. Uh, he's a vile man. I should not have brought this movie up uh, to talk about on the show. I feel a little guilty about it. But when we were asking about like talking cat movies, there's just something about watching this movie in a theater in 2016 with like a packed crowd that was just so bizarre because it feels like out of bounds. Like this kind of movie feels like it should have died in the 90s or early 2000s. Kevin Spacey stars as a businessman who does not make enough time for his family and as cosmic punishment for that, a, I guess, wizard played by Christopher Walken, like traps him in a cat's body for a week. And Kevin Spacey has to learn how to be a good dad in a week while trapped in a cat's body. And instead of learning anything, he's just a horrible cat. 
this movie's like annoying to watch because the cat just constantly screeches and complains and smashes shit and pissing all over the place and it's like <laughs> getting drunk. Yeah. It's like a really piece of shit person like in a cat's body, which is like I don't know, a very interesting place to take this kind of story, honestly. And I think that's what I really responded to watching it in a crowd, you know, with children. I I was drinking alcohol and found it very funny at the time. Uh, (laughs) So we were laughing together probably for different reasons. But what I found fascinating about this movie is just how fucking dark and mean and cruel it is because it looks nice. It looks like it would be kind of a talking cat, kind of like, you know, this guy learns to be a a better dad and like bonds with his daughter. But instead he's like an alcoholic who like, he uses his time as a cat to spy on his wife while she like uh, is committing adultery. There's a huge debate in the third act about whether or not to pull the plug on his human body while it's in a coma. And then like the big climax of the film and what really dropped my jaw was that the cat has to race to the top of uh, the business building that Kevin Spacey owns to stop his son from committing suicide. Yeah. And the two of them jump off the building together. I'm like, I'm watching a fucking kids movie about this guy who's like trying his hardest in vain to stop his kid from killing himself. And he fails. And then it ends up being a fake suicide that was used for publicity. Yes. Which was so horrible. What a strangely dark film. Like, (laughs) <laughs> what kid was going to go to the theater and want to see a bunch of like my mean ex-wife jokes from this like sarcastic asshole who is called Mr. Fuzzy Pants throughout the movie. And a lot of the jokes are about how it's emasculating to be this like fluffy cat. Did y'all find it at least interesting that like clash of tones between like what should be a goofy kids movie and what ends up being like this dark sarcastic Kevin Spacey project? Yeah, I think that's, like, the main thing that I took away from it was, holy shit, like, I thought it was going to be, like, goofball, kind of like the movies that me and James picked, and it was very disturbing. Yeah, I I don't want to say I really liked this movie, but (laughs) I think that this movie was really close to being almost a cult classic, where 10, 20, you know, the Kevin Spacey stuff wouldn't happen. Like, if, I think if it would have taken it even a little further, it had the makings of something that people would look back on as this odd, super dark, messed up kids movie. Like, especially when the suicide stuff happened at the end, like, yeah, my jaw hit the floor. I'm like, what are you kidding? This is a kid's movie. It, I don't think it quite, it doesn't get there. And I think mm-hmm. part of the reason why is like, it does kind of suck to have to hang out with Kevin Spacey. His character in this movie just sucks. He's an awful father and husband, and he doesn't really like learn anything by the end of the movie. And <laughs> wait, that's wait, wait. <laughs> sort of frustrating. I do love the scene where uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he hasn't learned anything. He, has, he hasn't changed a beat, but uh, he just kind of sighs and goes i should have been a better dad that's, that's it that's literally that's it. the whole that's all his character, of his character i was conflicted about that because on the one hand that made me like the film less on the other hand it sort of is the heart of the film like this film does have a black soul yeah so i don't know i was pretty uh, on the fence about it but i i definitely dug how much darker it was than the other films we watched 
Yeah, I'm trying to see like what my thoughts are on the cat. I think the quality of the cat talk and cat movement was pretty good. I mean, what do y'all think about like I guess just like the quality of Mr. Fuzzy Pants as a cat character? I think he's a lot more charismatic than Duffy, but that <laughs> charisma is all annoying. Yeah. Just howling and hissing and like the movie cannot let the cat be. You know, like a talking cat just lets Duffy like lay around and like kind of stare off into space. You know, it's kind of filling time, but it's not like pushing you to be like constantly entertained. This movie cannot have the cat in the same room as the scene without you hearing it constantly. Just like in the background while other people are talking, like it just constantly reminding you that a cat is in the film. Whenever he's not narrating. And then the Christopher Walken wizard character basically tells him like, hey, the only way to get out of this body is like be a good cat. And so you have like maybe 10 minutes of the film where he like is actually behaving and being a nice cat, but it doesn't last very long. He does get his daughter to say, I wish daddy was more like the cat. So I I guess he does succeed. And he also like (laughs) kind of gets it on with his wife a little bit. Oh, yeah. They have a very intimate night together. Yeah. See, I think if it would have, like, made it more strange and even darker and gone some places where it probably shouldn't have gone, I think I would have liked it even more. I think this is the closest you'll get from, like, a mainstream movie, though. Like, this is directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who did, like, the Addams Family movies. Men in Black. uh, Men in Black. That's bizarre that he made something, you know, on a David Dakota level. You know, one thing I have to say, too, that I absolutely did hate about this movie was the <laughs> shit with the freaking building where the whole big conflict, like you have the family stuff. Oh, he's a crappy dad mm-hmm. and now he's a cat. He has to become a better dad. But a big <laughs> chunk of the film is about his building and how it's the tallest. But, oh, wait, there's this one in Chicago that's like 60 feet taller and there's like this dick measuring contest about who can have the tallest building. And then there's all this drama about he's in a coma and his partners in the company are trying to steal it from him and they don't want it to be the tallest building. Ugh, that was all that was so boring to me. They might as well be making cheese balls. <laughs> I would rather watch them make about 20 batches of cheese balls. All the business building stuff. Was I think it was worthwhile just so his son could jump off of it. Because true, true. <laughs> that, that scene is really what seals it for me. I made this building so my boy could jump off. <laughs> I need it to be the tallest building so my little boy could jump off of it. I mean, I guess you're right in a way. They could have had him jump off of something else. I don't know. I, I could have done without all that. I think one rule after watching these films, to make a successful talking cat or talking dog film you need as much of the talking cat or dog as possible oh yeah anytime there's like extraneous stuff with humans or with like business ventures personally i don't care just give me more of the actual talking animal that's so funny to hear when a talking cat is i'm guessing your favorite one out of these movies and duffy is like barely in it (laughs) anytime (laughs) there's like no duffy on the screen i'm like where's duffy but the parts where he is it's just so much so much joy (laughs) into my heart well that's a different okay put that to the side that doesn't 
abide by the rule as a general rule that <laughs> a talking cat does not abide by. I think that's generally true. It's funny that there's not more Duffy in that movie. <laughs> so much focus. What I on think the is humans. interesting about Nine Lives that like these other movies don't touch on is just like capitalizing on cat internet videos. Like it opens with this montage of Kevin Spacey musing about how people think cats are really cute, but they're actually like assholes. And he's doing that on top of like really cute cat videos. And and the movie ends with a cameo mm. from Lil Bub as Rest if it's like peace. the biggest celebrity get of all time. And it kind of is. It is. Uh, in, in this genre. <laughs> I mean, Lil Bub was like more of a celebrity than Kevin Spacey at this point. So Oh, definitely. Yeah. And, Kevin Spacey is the one that's alive, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I just like that it treats internet cat videos and little bub like talking cat royalty. Because I feel like that is where cat worship is right now. So I like that the movie addressed it directly. Has there ever been like a truly great, like a masterpiece of a talking cat movie? I mean, I think there is one and I almost recommended it for this episode but it's based off this really great novel and it's one of my favorite like films of all time, but it's called the three lives of Thomasina. And it's one of those live action Disney movies from like, I don't know, like the fifties or sixties. And it's about this cat Thomasina who like dies and then comes back. And, you know, there's this little girl whose dad's a vet, but doesn't really spend that much time with her. And they live in this like cute little town in Ireland. And there's a woman that the, the count, the town treats as like an outcast because they say she's like a witch, but she actually helps all the animals in town. And I don't know, they all kind of come together and it's really sweet. And then Thomasina talks the whole time, but it's more so like, she's not talking, but like you hear like a voiceover and it's this calming, like sweet British woman's Mm. voice. That sounds nice. It's a beautiful, it's a great movie. It's it's very, very, very good. But it didn't blend in with the kind of, you know, we were on the trashier realm. Oh, yeah. We were not doing good movies this episode. Yeah. So I'm like, nah, I'm not going to pick that one. I would think of like any movies with like little girls who are witches and have like cat sidekicks would be my first thought. So like Kiki's Delivery Service or Sabrina the Teenage Witch or Hocus Pocus. But those cats are more like sidekicks. Yeah, they're not the main character. I need a story the main character is a talking animal. I feel like it's a genre that hasn't been perfected yet. I don't I want one of my like favorite like serious directors to tackle a talking animal movie and see how it turns out. I want Nicholas Reffin to do like a, a synth heavy neon light Fuck yeah. cat movie. <laughs> well i enjoyed watching these three movies together even though it felt like brain poison um <laughs> i watched them all in like quick succession and i felt dumber for it by the end and we haven't done an episode like this since we did neil breen so it's probably good to like clear the palate a little bit like that if you want something really sweet and calm and kind of baffling a talking cat is your go-to i feel like the ones me and Brittany picked are a lot more dark and violent and just like how is this for kids was my question right. the entire time. But I think any, any of these would do well in like a midnight movie slot, you know, case of beer, the right friends. You could laugh at these films. I think as a group, I, I think that these is like a triple feature is the way to go. Like you said, it's a just, mind melter. Just watch them all in a row. I don't know in what <laughs> order 
I would think a, a talking cat would be last. Oh, I would say first. First? Oh, interesting. To set the tone. I think if you watch it last, you will fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Not much happens. <laughs> oh, man. Well, next episode on the show, we are going to do another over-the-top CGI-heavy film from the 90s. We're going to do Cube, the high-concept Canadian thriller about Whoa. the cube that kills people. I've seen that. It's very good. It's so gross. I'm looking forward to it. I feel like I have been putting it off for a long time. Also, I feel like I've been putting off a talking cat for a long time. You know, like James was saying <laughs> earlier, we used to seek out these like worst movies of all time lists and like go out of our way to watch this stuff. It's kind of embarrassing that it took me almost a decade to watch that film. So thank you for making me check it off my list. Even if I did complain afterwards. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.